Well, my name is Todd. I know I met a few different new people here, so uh, those of you that are new, welcome. We're glad you're here to worship with our family, and, and uh, so yeah, I just wanted to say welcome. We're uh, in the middle of studying through the book of 2 Corinthians, so if you have a Bible, you can open, open them up to 2 Corinthians 8. If you don't have a Bible, um, there's some people that will be coming down the aisles here in just a second. You can raise your hand, and they'd be happy to put a Bible in your hands. We would love for you to be able to to have one if you don't have one if you already do you can put it back and save it for somebody else but here's what i want to do today to kind of try to frame a little bit of, of where we're going this morning we're going to be starting kind of a mini series that's based out of second corinthians 8 through 9. one of the reasons i love to teach kind of systematically through a text of scripture is you don't get to determine what topics you're going to cover Whatever topic comes up next, you cover. And one of the topics that seems so difficult for people to kind of wrestle through is this aspect of giving. One that I hope at the end of this four weeks, you won't see it as a difficult or toilsome reality, but you'll see it instead in light of God's grace in a whole new way. Now, what we're going to do is, is we're going to take a look. I'm going to start us off by looking at two different people from the book of Luke. You've probably heard of them. One is in, in Luke 18. It is the rich young ruler, and the other one is that a guy named Zacchaeus. Now, well, a lot of you probably know those stories. You even sang about those particular men. Um, I don't know how many of you grew up around church, but Zacchaeus. See, you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. Yeah. We should have summed that this morning, huh? What a rocking world. But in this, there's some things that we find out about these guys. Let me, let me kind of lay them out for you. One was this rich, young ruler. That's what we find out about him. We find out in both Matthew and in Mark, if you look at Mark 10, that this ruler, probably more of a religious ruler, were, was a part of, of the religious sect and what was going on at that particular time. But the thing that we find out about him is that he was, look at that term, extremely rich. The second guy that we encounter, Zacchaeus, we find out also he was a tax collector. Now, let me just help you understand what tax collectors were at this time. A tax collector was the crime boss and the head of a crime syndicate. And so this little man, the best way that I can explain it is if we were to do a movie, Joe Pesci would play his part. But we also find out that he was rich. Now, in the first instance in their encounter with Jesus, this rich young ruler comes up to him, and we find out from Matthew, not only does he come up to Jesus, but it says that he came on bended knee. He came and kneeled before Jesus. And he asked a pretty intriguing question, and that question was, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if somebody asks me that question, I'm going whole hog into a gospel presentation, full bore, and I'm going to bring him to Jesus. Now watch what Jesus did. Jesus looked at him, and he was going to go after something very important in this rich young man's life, his heart. He used the law, and he said to him, well, no one, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now, why did he do that? But he was going after, again, like I said, the heart the reality of our money and our possessions and our stuff, that when you read through the Gospels, is they are so intertwined with our heart. They're intertwined to such an extent that our affections can either be 
cause to desire them in a greater way and to make them the centerpiece of our life as you kind of see in different aspects of the way Jesus teaches it. Or these affections can actually be turned in a wonderful way where our possessions become the means by which then we take what God has given to us, his grace, and we allow ourselves to then grace others. So the problem is not the money. The problem is the love of money. And that's really what he's going after now, the response of the young man, a man that probably knew the law extensively, came along and he said, all of these I've kept from my youth. Those five things, check, 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 check. Got him, Jesus. On it. To which Jesus responded, basically going to those first three commands in, in, in the Decalogue, in those Ten Commandments, going after his heart and his passion for God alone, says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow Whoa. Everything? Really everything? Now Jesus doesn't say that to everybody. If you've ever noticed, he doesn't tell everybody to sell everything they have. He goes after it from this particular standpoint, this young man's heart. He was addressing what I think is a crucial issue to this young man, which is this, which you find in like chapter 16, just a couple of verses before, when he's talking to the Pharisees. And again, it says in there that they had a love for money, but he was going after this idea. Verse 13, no one can serve two masters. You either hate the one, love the other, be devoted to the one, despise the other. And here's the crux of it. You can't serve God and money. You can't. They're diametrically opposed. <coughs> And it says in there that when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And in Matthew, we find a way that he walked away hopeless. That was one encounter with Jesus. Now, in the next chapter, though, we have little Zacchaeus. We know about him, that he was coming to Jesus to, to find out what was going on in that particular kind of events that were happening at that time. Jesus himself then invites himself to the home of Zacchaeus. We find this in verses 1 through 7. Zacchaeus probably not even sure, not fully sure what to do at that particular moment because why in the world would this religious teacher in any way want to come to the home of the crime boss of the crime syndicate? Why would he want to come there? But yet he looks at Jesus and says, sure. Now just imagine, because again, we find out the people were like buzzing amongst one another. Does Jesus know where he's going? He's going to the crime boss's house. These little legs fluttering. Jesus following with his apostles in tow. Comes and probably practiced what would have happened for somebody to come into a town of hospitality. And he probably stayed the night with him. Somewhere in the midst of staying the night with him and, and beginning to talk through these things, probably over food, all of a sudden this little big man, this gigantic crime boss, stands in front of everybody. And this is what he says in verse 18. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. You understand how crazy this is. 50% of his money gone. The other 50% he's putting in absolute jeopardy for all these people that he's wronged and defrauded over all these years. And the question that we have to have in the back of our minds is, what is the difference between the rich young ruler and this other guy, this Joe Pesci-like guy? What is the difference? How did they encounter Jesus differently? <clears throat> What was it 
that caused one guy to follow through and give all that he had to the poor? And what was it that another man didn't? And I would say this, at the very end of chapter 18, Jesus says that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than for a, for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. This, this particular man, Zacchaeus, somehow, not just because he was small, by the way, he was able to thread the eye of the needle and go through. But what happened? Why, Why did one leave so sad? Why did one, now think about it, he stood in front of everybody excited to give everything that he had. What happened? And the good news is we don't have to wait to find out. Because in verse 9, Jesus tells us, Today salvation has come to this house. Since he also was a son of Abraham, he placed his faith in the Christ, the Messiah that had come, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, which is the core message of the book of Luke. He had encountered, the, he had encountered Jesus. That's the contrast. Now here's what I want to put out as just a proposition for us to wrestle through. I believe that when any one of us in this room have truly encountered the incredible reality of Jesus, I think that our money becomes something that is so secondary that is no longer something we strive after because we've seen the beauty of Jesus. Instead now, our money becomes a means of worshiping Jesus in all facets of our life. Therefore, I think any message that talks about giving that does not talk about the grandness and the excellence of Jesus is just a message that is full of legalism trying to then cajole you into giving to a 501c3. I believe that unless the majesty of Jesus drives your giving, you will never understand the joy of giving. And that, I believe, is what Zacchaeus encountered. And that is what I believe Paul's going to do in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And understand what he's doing. We have to kind of, kind of wrap our minds around that crucial point. Is that authentic giving comes from authentic salvation. And I would say this. One of the reasons that some people within churches don't like to give is potentially because you have never truly bent the knee to, to Jesus. You've never seen him in his excellence. You've never seen him in his grandness. You've never fallen on your face in front of this one who, used, who sits in unapproachable light while angels scream his name. Once you grasp that Jesus, I believe that the, the proportion to which you understand him is the proportion to which you will be joyously wanting to give in the way that he calls us to. Now what Paul's going to do He's going to give kind of the same counsel to them. It was about, in this particular case, if you kind of study 2 Corinthians 8 through 9, it's about this one-time gift. We have to get that. He's not talking in this case about a tithe. In fact, the concept of a tithe really doesn't apply itself. Like, we, like oftentimes we apply it into the new covenant. He's not talking about regular giving. That's what, not what he's talking about. But he's going to bring a principle to bear in this that I think has everything to do with Jesus and the grandness of Jesus. And what he's going to go after in a large way is for us to understand the grace of God. Now, what's the grace of God? The grace of God is this extended love that expects nothing in return. This is the idea of grace. A love that extends itself without an expectation of anything in return that is lavish, it is incomprehensible, it is un, 
understandable. I figured if we're going to be making wrong grammar like we did in one of our songs, I can make wrong grammar. It's almost in a weird way a crime at the way to which God's grace extends into humanity. But in the same way I believe that the proportion to which you see Jesus will affect the proportion to which you become generous, I believe the proportion to which you understand grace will affect the proportion to which you choose to then give with absolute graciousness and lavishness. This is what Paul is going to go after with them. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to take what we learned last week. So you've got to keep this in your mind, what Christian talked about. He talked about this idea of belief and action and desire. And this is the question I'm going to try to answer for us today. Because I think everybody in here that knows Jesus, if you're like me, you want to be that joyful giver that we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. But one of the things he's going to explain to us is, is this desire that he's talking about needs to be fueled by what we believe and the action that we take. That's what he's going to do. He's going to take two concepts. He's going to take belief, and he's going to take action, and he's going to show how it fuels our passion and our desire for generosity. Now, one of the reasons I think Paul's going after this, and that I think he wants them to see, and he wants us to see it, is that our giving around here at Cornerstone is not merely to pay bills. It's not merely to keep our pastors fed. It's not merely to somehow meet the needs that are within here. I think Paul is going after something so much bigger that will affect how it is we meet the needs within the body. He's going after this reality that our giving actually impacts and affects how it is that we know Christ, love Christ, and see Christ. So keep this in the back of your head. This is where we're going, okay? I really want you to get this because I want you to leave today not only understanding it and not only then willing to then go practice giving like he's talking about here, but also that you would have the correct heart and the correct desire to want to want to give in lavish ways that are going to be explained as we move through this. So here we are. Look down at chapter 8. Look at verse 1. And we're going to kind of wrestle through a little bit about where Paul's going here. Now watch how he started. He says, I want you to know, and then he says this, brothers, in other words, he's saying, he's talking as a pastor now to them, he might say brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given amongst the churches of Macedonia. Now don't miss this, there he says it, I want you to know about the grace of God. Everything from the front end of this passage to the back end of this passage is about God's extravagant love extended to humanity. Everything in which he's going to frame this, their inclination to give is what kind of is the key here. What fuels their fire is their not only understanding, but experiential understanding of this amazing grace of God that he's given to the Macedonian churches. This grace, he's saying, flows from one primary source, is that in order for me to grace others, I must first understand this greater grace. And his point is, is that the Macedonians, what Thomas Shear spoke on a few weeks ago, when he was in Matthew, or 2 Corinthians 5 and 6, they had encountered the risen Christ in such a way that they knew they were now these sinners that were transformed and made different and reconciled to God. They had experienced the grace of Jesus. And it fueled them. The riches of God's grace and God making himself known to these particular people was poured out on them. And his concept is, is once they grasped this, they wanted to give. Now let me just kind of put this out there for all of us to know this. Let me just speak as bluntly and clearly as I can. 
The desire to give is not our natural inclination. If you don't believe that, come to my house with my children. Now don't get me wrong, I've done a phenomenal job. My wife's still growing in her parenting, but she's not in the service like, oh, it's recorded. Strike that part. But there's a natural inclination since the fall for us to be selfish. That's our natural bent. That's where we naturally go. And so Paul in writing this, the reason he's using this as an example is because this is so mind-bendingly the opposite of the way that humanity tends to go. That's what he wants them to get here. And then in verse 2, he goes on and he says this, that this grace that he's talking about was given to them in a severe test of affliction. Their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty have overflown in a wealth of generosity on their part. He wants them to understand they were in a severe affliction. That, that idea of a severe affliction is literally that they were being crushed by life circumstances. Because of their following of Jesus, because of their, their, their willingness to proclaim the greatness of Jesus, they were experiencing an affliction that not only was crushing them, but even, even includes this idea that they were poor. And not only were they just any kind of poor, they were in extreme poverty. That word extreme is this Greek word bathos, which we get our word bathosphere, that we explore the depths of the oceans. It was, it was a deep, deep poverty. They were not only in affliction, but they were in poverty. <laughs> For most of us, it's hard to relate to the concept of poverty. Like the other night, my kids came up to me and they said, hey, can we go to the movie? Now, I jokingly looked back at them and said, oh, kids, you know what? We're trying to do some different things with money. So, and I just said this, you're just going to have to give you to the fact that your parents are poor. Now, think about that. We are poor because we didn't want to go to a movie. That's not them. They didn't have credit cards, so they never left home without them. They only had one change of clothes. They didn't have cars. They didn't have televisions. And God forbid they did not have the internet. How did they survive? <laughs> Poverty for them was literally the idea of merely trying to find housing and food. That was poverty. Now, the reality of pressure, whether it's from poverty or whatever it might be, something always comes to the surface. Sometimes it's good things and sometimes it's bad things. But Paul's point is, is this extreme poverty, this affliction that they were experiencing was pressing down upon them. And something that could have jaded them, something that also I would say this could have caused bitterness, could have caused even a greed to withhold. There was something about their encounter with the grace of God that caused them to move in an absolutely different direction. There was something about seeing Jesus for who he truly was that didn't allow them to become jaded, that didn't allow them to become greedy, didn't allow them to become bitter. Instead, if you look down in verse 2, they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Now what you're supposed to do when you read that is to go, no way. What? What? How did these people do this? I remember the first time I took my brother to, to Uganda with me. 
he went to go preach out at this church in, in, in kind of the middle of nowhere and he got out there and and he got them preaching and all the people walked up to him and began to give him gifts. Now I'll explain the gifts here in just a little bit. He got in the car and the whole time he's in the car, he's thinking to himself, how in the world can I ever take this from them? The money that they gave him was an extravagant about, probably about the month's salary that was worth about a buck and a half or two bucks to us. So he couldn't imagine the fact he was taking a month's salary from these people. And then when he gets out of the car, I realized they also gave him two chickens and six eggs. My brother's a chicken farmer, in case you didn't know. Kid. He couldn't understand that. This is what Paul's trying to get across here. This is a truly an amazing count. This church that was sitting in this parched existence, in a lot of ways, they were battered and they were squashed with, by life. As they were squashed, what oozed to the surface was this concept of the overflowing of the wealth of generosity. The only explanation of this that can be ever put in here is that what flooded into them was not the small amount that they gave. What flooded into them was the reality of the grace of Jesus. Like I said, from the very beginning to the end of this message, what I want you to hear and grasp and enjoy and love is the absolute immense, never-ending grace of God that reshapes everything about our perspective and how we view the world. And this is what it hit them. In fact, when I said earlier, the extent to which we understand grace is the extent to which we'll give, which Paul shows then in verses 3 through 4. Watch this, just so you can see where I'm coming from. He says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify. We're going to come back to that in a, in a later verse. And then he said this, and beyond their means of their own free will, look at this, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That word beyond literally means in contrast to their capacity. It didn't make any sense. The sense for verse 5 is Paul is saying, there's no way what I've seen with this group of people that I'm going to ever ask them for money. I do not want to in any way increase their poverty or their affliction. And they walked up to Paul, kind of off what we get from that last little phrase there, that last little concept he puts together. And they looked at him and they said to him, without a doubt, Paul, please, please don't rob us of this privilege. Would you please take what we have? It was... A Zacchaeus type of giving. They'd encountered the living Christ. This grace of giving comes from encountering God's grace. It's not dictated by ability. It doesn't have anything to do with being well off or with poor, but it simply has within it this understanding that once I grasp grace, I want to give grace, and it becomes joyous and enthusiastic. We love to do it. Verse 5 keeps on, and it, and it tells us where is the root of such grace giving. Look at verse 5. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. This is the important kind of linchpin of this particular text, and that they gave themselves first to the Lord, which kind of, when I explain it to you, you'll understand, it's so simple. Really what he's talking about here is that we know that our lives are not our own. Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16 said that we were these ones that were enemies of God. He then captured us as his very own. We became slaves of Christ 
who then he begins to explain are ambassadors of God and, and children of the God Most High. And what it is, is that we start to realize to give ourselves to them is that our possessions are not our own. Everything that I have is God's. Now we know that up here, and we're going to talk about this here in a second. It is one thing to believe something, but I would say this. We don't actually begin to understand something, not only past understanding it and desiring to do it, but then practicing it, which we'll talk about in just a second. But I would say this. They understood it is so easy to give up the part when you've already given up the whole. They were just a group of people and seeing this lavish grace of Jesus realized that everything was his. I would even say this, it's maybe an unspoken lesson of this. If you won't, let me print this way. It won't do any good to give our possessions to God unless we've first given ourselves to him. I think that's kind of the point of 1 Corinthians 13. Without love, What? It's pointless. They first came to know this living Christ and love this living Christ and be shaped by this living Christ. And I would say this, the type of giving that doesn't find itself first in giving to Christ can be harmful in all kinds of ways because I think we'll become tempted to imagine in the back of our heads that our stuff is enough and that somehow God will be more pleased with me if I give more of my things to him. Completely misunderstanding grace. Grace is not about earning God's favor. Listen to me. All of you in here that know Jesus Christ, God is fully pleased with you. You don't have to earn his favor, earn his pleasure. He has fully given it to us in his son, Jesus. It is grace. In fact, when we start giving, thinking somehow that God's going to be more pleased with this, it can only lead to pride. It can only lead to self-reliance. We can miss the point of generous giving, and eventually it just becomes twice. Grace. I don't even say this. If you've not given and continue to give yourself and your life to Christ, don't give your money. God's not after your money first. He's after you. In fact, all of you in here that maybe are unbelievers, and I, I don't know who is or not, I know sometimes one of the biggest reasons that people stay away from God is that they're worried about this idea of a preacher getting up in front of you and saying, give us your money. Now, don't get me wrong. I really do need a jet to get around this nation, okay? I really do. <laughs> If you haven't given yourself to God, we don't want your money. God doesn't want your money. What God is after is the heart. Because it's just, I think, just reality that sits into this is that God doesn't want our money because he knows that when he has our heart, he has our money. This is what he's after. Now, the implications here, and I think they're for us, are found in verses 6 and 7. Oh, my gosh, I'm way behind. Why didn't you guys tell me? This is kind of a team. You do your job. That's how my wife feels being married to me. 
right, look at verse 6. I had to, like, balance it. Accordingly, verse 6. We urge Titus that his hit started so also he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and faith, speech and love and knowledge and all earnestness, and in our love, that being Paul and Titus and those guys' love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Now on one end, what he's done for the first five verses is to lay out for us the why we ought to do this. He was picturing for them this grand reality of grace and this grace that had so impacted the Macedonians that when they saw the extensiveness of it, the incomprehensible nature of it, their giving began to rise in accord with that particular understanding of grace. But there's this, I would say, devious reality to us that oftentimes we can have a desire and we can have a knowledge, but if we don't put something into practice, we will end up doing what Jesus talked about at another time in which he said to this, this to them, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, there has to be a practice whereby which my heart follows along. I actually have to do something. Now in this particular instance, he said, Titus. He sent them to them to remind them, and this is what he said. There are so many facets. Look down there. If you, if you look at it, down in verse 7, faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, uh, even their love uh, for the Corinthians. They did not excel, though, in one particular area, which is what he's going after, which is giving. Despite all the good qualities, this is what I would put it as, they were incomplete, and Paul wanted them to grow to maturity. His point being this, you will never grow up until you first begin to also take what is in your head and your desire and put it into practice. In fact, the practice of giving can actually help us and can fuel us in our desire and our longing to want to do it. And this brings out what I would think call as a, a major implication of this. There is no way to grow in spiritual maturity without committing our finances to God. In fact, when I said earlier, they're so intertwined and God's understanding of our money in our hearts and his lordship coming to bear is so crucial that our handling of money actually affects how it is that we start to treasure them, how it is we start to hold either tightly or loosely to them. This practice of giving is huge. Now, I learned this in my own life over the last even just couple years. <coughs> A few years ago, Dan, who's sitting right here, challenged me in how I was giving my money. I was kind of just giving my money without kind of any actual practice of giving. It just kind of somehow floated between me and Cornerstone, and I kind of explained it thinking I was so, so smart and so prideful. And he began to challenge me on the fact that, no, it's not just the concept that money is flowing back and forth, but the actual practice is essential. The actual act of giving of something, it affects not just the understanding, but it begins to affect the actions. Because, Todd, by giving, you were reminding yourself of where the treasure was, and where that treasure is, your heart begins to go after it. You're sitting here, don't get practical now. <laughs> I think this is why Paul wrote in verse 10. Look at this. And in this matter, I give my judgment. Look at this. See this word? This benefits you. It's for you. Isn't that crazy? He doesn't 
just say, oh, you wonderful Corinthians, it's for the poor people in Jerusalem. You just put that forward. Thank you. You say this benefits you. When's the last time you held whether you tech or whatever you do in your form of giving and thought, oh my gosh, this is about ready to benefit me. I can't wait to give this because this is going to benefit me. But that's actually Paul's point here. And he says in there, benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this, he's referencing back to 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4, but actually now also to desire to actually do it. He interconnects this reality that it's not just the knowledge of giving. Almost all of you in this room have a knowledge of giving. In fact, if I said to you, what do you think of the tithe? You'd probably look back at me and say, oh, that's so you know, dumb. How in the world can you ask me that question? And giving should be from the heart. We know all these things. But there's a reality within the kind of the Greek mindset, which was this. There was a difference between knowing something cognitively and knowing something experientially. And this is what Paul's saying to them. You need to know it experientially. Give that way. And in fact, if they weren't willing to take that offering on to the Jerusalem church, I think Paul's point would say that your repentance really isn't real. This is where it interconnects back to what Christian talked about. Those people, it was sin on this side when he preached? I can't remember. Those people that were focused on sin were to do this one-time act of not only turning away from their sin, but to turn towards God. Plus, it's completed. That's why it says in verse 11, look at that. Finish doing it as well so that your readiness... Oh, did you change one? <laughs> so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by you completing it out of what you have. Now in this, I don't think I would be faithful to teaching this morning if I did not say that I think many of us within this room have reached sticking spots in our spiritual growth <coughs> because you've not begun to give as Scripture calls us to. There's all kinds of excuses. Like I just confessed. There we go. I got mine out. I confessed mine. But many times I've heard every excuse in the world. I just have too many things going on to give. You know, I'll do it when I finally get a full-time job. I'll do it when my car's paid off. I'll do it when I've paid off my, my, my children's school. And probably what I've read everything about your children, they're not going to want to go to school anyways. You'll begin when you can really give something. You'll begin when you get that promotion. There's all these lies that we must turn away to from God. I don't care if socioeconomic or the upper end of the scale or the lower end of the scale. God, words, words, has excelled in this act of grace now. Be overwhelmed with the greatness of Jesus and his grace towards us and now bring it to bear in such a way that you become the man or the woman that God intended you by practicing. Make it real. And then what he does, I love this. Verse 8, he says, I'm not trying to command you and then in verse 9, watch, he gives the ultimate example. Here's the example to follow, and he takes us right back to grace. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. It was not only the means of grace, but it was the example of grace. This one 
who prior to his coming to this world, like I said earlier, sat in unapproachable light with angels proclaiming the greatness of him, became one of us, was died, and was buried. And this, he says, is the poverty journey to which Jesus walked on that we are now called to. Now, I'm going to explain that here in a little bit because Paul's going to tell us a little bit more about it. But that's why today I don't want to come in here and I don't want to control you. And I don't want to do gimmicks. I don't want to create fear. That's not what I want to do. Is there a fear in standing in God's face and saying to him that this is my stuff, I'll do whatever I want with it? Of course it is. You should tremble at the thought of saying that. But his point here is grace. They've been brought to the grace of giving in their lives because they encountered the grace of Jesus. It is the ultimate, never-ending motivation of our giving. Fear might control us, but grace motivates us. And there must be no other. I'd say this. There's no other because from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace upon grace. He says give in that proportion. I hope you're not here, sick of hearing me say the word grace because this message is grace from beginning to end five different times. He throws it in this particular text. He wants us to see that Christ gave himself for us and we have then received his grace and we give ourselves into him and others in his name because we understand that grace. This, this grace responds to all that we have, everything. And this is how the, the Macedonians gave liberally out of their poverty because they got that it wasn't a matter of affluence it wasn't a matter of how much I have. It was just grace. They got the grace of God. So in verse 11, he says, you're ready for it. But then look at verse 12. God desires in our willing hearts that are, look at this, give according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. In a word, proportion. So what's the proportion that we're talking about here? Well, the beauty of, I think, what he's doing here is not so much about now a set number of 10% or even 20% or more if we're going to actually do a tithe comment concept out of the Old Testament. But Scott Hafferman had a quote that I loved here. He was convinced, Paul was, that the quantity of their giving will match the quality of their changed hearts. Paul wasn't giving a sermon on the amount. He had something so much bigger in mind. This idea of proportion is, is that it's according to what a person has. It means that both the rich and the poor can give gifts to God. It means that when we're giving, the extent of our giving, it must come from a transparent heart. It does not mean that if we currently live $10,000 a year, that God doesn't want us to go to 100000 or a quarter of a million dollars a year. He doesn't oppose anything like that. I would say this, where God's opposition comes in is when generosity to us is somehow hoarded for ourselves in an excessive way of worldly possessions and investments instead of receiving His grace as this understanding of giving it away. I will never forget the the first time that I read this idea of savings being not for me, but as a means to be able to share with others, that blew my mind. 
If God increases our income, I don't think he's trying to tell us somehow that he wants us to live a more luxurious, luxurious life. I think instead he's commissioning us to the exhilarating and joyful mission of giving with everything that we are. So in other words, we can make as much as we can, but I would say this, not so that we can now get caught up in a trap, which I feel so often our twi twisted desires do, but now so that we can give in cre creative generosity in all kinds of ways. I'm not even talking about just cornerstone. I'm talking about people with a heart to just give and give and give. So Paul's getting that. The proportion is an amount. The proportion is to give extravagantly. Look at verse 13. It's not only proportion, but he's going to talk about this concept of reciprocity. I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that our, their abundance may supply your need. That there may be fairness. Almost sounds like communism. It's not. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Thank you. I skipped Malachi. Thank you. See, he was a good friend. All the rest of you didn't even see anything. Now, in that passage, let me just tell you this. I do not believe that Paul is teaching the concept of a quid pro quo. That somehow I'll do nice things for you, and then in return, you will do nice things for me. He's not teaching that. I think instead what he's talking about is this concept of reciprocity has everything to do with all the riches and all the treasures of the people of Israel were brought down in and through Paul. Paul now became the messenger to these people who had given them something so much greater than the treasures of this earth. He had given them the treasures of Jesus Christ. And the natural reality of how this thing begins to work together as a people is that they would then give back. This is how God's people are supposed to work. I think that's why he includes verse, verse 16. Oh, verse 15. God wins. Where it's written, whoever gathered much, look at this, had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. What does that mean? Well, he's referencing back to Exodus 16. And the concept was is that God gave all the people manna, and later on we find out that they received quail, they were birds, they, they received all these particular things. And the idea of that was is that no one was supposed to have more than the other or less than the other, but everybody was supposed to have what they need. Now just stop for a second. Can you imagine if we lived off of what we need? Now be careful. Some of you are going to say, well, then all I really need is air and water and food and a place to lay my head. That's not what he's saying here. He understands that in all kinds of different ways, different people have different needs and different realities that come to bear on their life. But what he's saying, I believe, is talking about something of a grander concept that around the world and in every way, all of those people that call God their father are his. And that becomes the means of shared resources that we then begin to invest and divest in different ways around the world to advance the kingdom of Jesus. God understands that it costs more to live here. I was just talking about the young man this week. We were wrestling through what it costs to live in San Francisco. First of all, who wants to live there? 
But I understood it costs more to live there. Paul's point is he understands how this whole thing works together. He understands how money flows. He understands these things. But I think what happens, especially in affluent nations like the United States, is we're not content to live by what we need. We begin then out of twisted hearts to begin to want more and more and more. And in our selfish desires, because that's our natural bent, we begin to accumulate more and more stuff to satiate our desires that he talks about in James 3. All the while, the need for what God's seeking to do around the world is death. And that's why a few weeks ago when you all gave to our missionaries that are going around the world in extravagant ways, I was so stoked about our church. I think differently through our money if it's truly God's. That means if any one of us come up to one another and has a need, that's what was going on in the book of Acts. It's God's money. We're just investing it in different ways, not only here, but even around the world. This is going to become so important to where I'm going to go over these next two weeks is that this is God's money. We've understood his grace. And I promised you all a few weeks ago that it's going to get uncomfortable in here. And I mean that with a smile on my face and I can't wait to be joyful about it because God loves a joyful giver. I can't wait. Because I believe in us choosing to rearrange our money, there's going to be new levels of joy inside of this church that are unexplainable because of encountering the grace of Jesus Christ. I think as God looses our hands from our money, we are going to become so excited and so thrilled and so overjoyed in the grace of Jesus Christ that you're going to see a joy around here in the giving of God's, of God's money that he's entrusted to us. What do I want from Cornerstone? I want the never-ending joy that God has promised us to land into this place so that when people walk in here, they demand to know an answer for the hope that is in us. And the only way that's going to happen is we've got to start boosting our grip on our things and our stuff. You with me? Uh, <laughs> can I not give my TV till after Super Bowl weekend? My God. <laughs> Are you with me? Yeah. Okay. Well, I wanted to bring up uh, somebody that is uh, dear to me. Uh, anybody that doesn't know Robin Albanese, um, she is, in a lot of ways, the mother around our office. And at the age of 49, can you believe it? She's going to retire. I know. Who retires at 49? But she's going to share with you a little bit about, just out of this principle, what she learned as we kind of give an account for you of what happened in Dollar So, Robin, can you share Good morning. I only wish I were 49. <laughs> uh, a little bit, a few years advanced. Um, Todd asked me to share a little bit about dollar days. Many of us in this room contributed uh, individual dollars or road checks to support dollar days, and that's an effort that we do in uh, December to bless people in our community. We collect all these dollars, and I, <clears throat> excuse me, I tried to get the dollar exact amount, but it was I think in the range of about $5,000. And 
and then a group of people are entrusted with that money to then go into our community and bless people. And I had never participated in that aspect of it. I had contributed money and participated that way, but I had never participated in actually giving the money. So I went to Terry Earwood, who is our um, family pastor, those of you that don't know him, and I said, I'd really like to go on a trip with you on a, on a, like a, a spree of, of uh, blessing people. And so we coordinated. Um, we met up at Walmart on a Saturday morning, right? Um, a week or so, 10 days before Christmas. And uh, with Mike Gifford, another member of our church, so just the three of us. And we prayed in the parking lot that God would give us direction, would, would point to the people that he wanted us to bless. And we were pretty excited about it. And so we went into uh, Walmart and just started walking up and down the aisles as if we were shoppers. And we were observing people and, and um, just, you know, kind of whispering to ourselves, what about them? What about them? And, um, and it was really great fun, even in the hunt of finding the person, our people, our family that we were going to bless. So um, for Terry and I, a, a particular couple caught our eye and... Um, we had no idea who they were, didn't know if they were married, but there were three um, young boys with them. So I followed them in the store. <laughs> I like stalked them and to see, you know, are they the one, Lord? And, and you know, your heart, you're praying and you're excited. And, and are they the one that you want? I, I am going to lose my composure here because when I finish the story. Um, so um, I'm on my phone. I'm... Terry's in another, Terry and Mike are in another store, you know, another part of the store. And so I text Terry and I said, they're, they're on their way to check out. I think they're the ones. So um, I follow them and to the checkout stand. They decided to go to the garden center. And I don't know if you know Walmart, but the garden center is another checkout area. So I go over there and I, and I'm like, Terry, you know, come, come. So um, I start losing it. I start losing my composure because I'm so excited. And, um, and so Terry comes in and rescues me because he's seasoned. He's done this before and he introduces himself as being from Cornerstone. And um, could we bless them today and, and buy their uh, gro uh, not groceries, but uh, items? And they had like a Nerf gun and, you know, some toys, really pretty modest. And um, not a lot. It wasn't extravagant by any means. And they were flabbergasted, and, and but readily agreed, and that was that was nice. That was good that they didn't put up a fight for us. Um, and so as we, you know, it's Christmas time, so there's a long checkout, and as we um, are going through the checkout line, we are getting to know them a little bit. I'm just going to call them uh, Mike and Michelle just for the sake of their privacy. So we get to know them, we, we get introduced to their sons, and we're talking about them. Well, then God begins to reveal to us the need of this family. Um, the husband had been working um, nonstop. He had, I think he said that was his, he was going to work that afternoon, 23rd straight day. Um, the wife had recently been laid off her job and was um, hoping to be rehired. And his mother, Mike's mother, had passed away at the end of September, and they had not yet even had a memorial service for her yet, for lack of funds. And as, as you're hearing this story, you're, you're simultaneously ministering these people and praising God 
really for his grace on them, on us, for the privilege of using your money to bless this family. So we get to check out. I don't even remember. I was visiting with the boys, the young boys and stuff, and I don't even, I don't know that I ever remember what the amount was of the um, um, gift. But then Terry, in Terry's just beautiful way, um, it's kind of like that game show, but there's more. <laughs> and, and he decides in that moment that this isn't enough to bless this family. So he says, why don't you take these things to the car and come back in and shop again? There's got to be more that you need. And I'm like, wow, this is how this is done. So I forget who went to the car, unloaded the stuff, brought them back in the store. Terry's like, what do you, what else do you need? Well, our sons need clothes and shoes. Great, go get them. So they go back in the store. I'm, I'm really skeptical that they're gonna go in one door and out the other, that, they're, that they might not receive the gift. But I'm, I'm trusting Terry with this. So we find another woman in line, and we bless her in the meantime. And then I'm, I'm worried, because these people have been gone, Liz, Mike and Michelle, have been gone about 30 minutes. And I'm like, okay, they're not here. So I go hunting down, and I find them buying shoes and socks. So I said, oh, great, I'm so glad you're here. I said, please come back. So we'll get these things for you. So we go up back through the line, Again, we get to know about a little bit more about them. The husband had just recently, within the last month or so, started reading his Bible, the Bible that his grandmother had given him. They'd been to church for the first time in I don't know how many years, not Cornerstone, but another church. So we're checking him out, and we're all excited with all these clothes and jeans and you know little boy things and you know tennis shoes and stuff. So we get to check out and. And Terry was in charge of the money. And so he pulls out gift cards. We had a Walmart gift card, slide that, you know, paid off a portion of it. He slides a uh, Visa debit card, which I know this is being recorded. I hate those things. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I'm like, what's happening here, Lord? He slides it again. The cashier tries it. It doesn't work. $225 we owe. Terry and I start pulling out our money. My husband had given me our Christmas money for our family. I could not get out $200 faster. I pull out $200. Terry opens his wallet. He pulls out another $30 to pay this off. I think the, the folks were completely closed. The experience of grace on this family and on me particularly. I'm like, this is why I wanted to do this. I wanted to be part of this. I wanted to be part of blessing the family. But you have experience, and, and, and uh, Todd is exactly right. I told him this morning, just we were talking before service, that was the best Christmas gift I gave that whole year. Just, and it continues to bless me. It continues just telling you about the story. It's a blessing to me. It's God's goodness to me. It's, it's his love and affection for me that he gave my husband and I money that just flows through us to give to somebody else. Now, we're not perfect in this. Of course, there are times when we're selfish. Of course, there are times when 
We take care of ourselves first, disregard for other people. But we're on this journey. Three quick lessons. If you're struggling in this, find somebody in your life who does it well. A Terry Earwood, or Terry Earwood, or someone that you know that gives generously, that understands, that is a recipient of God's grace in it. Attach yourself to that person. Learn from them. That's what I did. I was unpracticed in this. I did not know how to spontaneously give somebody I completely didn't know money. So the first thing is find somebody who does it well and be a follower of them and figure it out with them. Secondly, like Todd said, it doesn't matter if you have $10 or $1,000. $10 given in grace and sacrifice and love and affection far exceeds $1,000 given with obligation. Absolutely. And the third thing is, it's all God's money anyway. It's just coming through us to somebody else. And if you are suspicious or you got burned giving money to somebody or an organization or a foundation and you got burned and you heard they used it wrong, don't let your heart get bitter. Please don't let your heart get bitter. Give again. The money was God's in the first place. The money was God's when it left your hands. The money is God's when it goes into that foundation of that family's home. What they do with it, they will have to answer to God. Continue to give and give and give and give. And, and have a blast doing it. Such a blessing. Thank you so much. I'm sorry I took, took so much of your time. Have a blessed day. Thank you. So what you learn from this is that giving and stocking go hand in hand. <laughs> You'll find that in Second Thessalonians two, I think. Maybe Second Hesitations. I can't remember. Um, I know some, we're going to have somebody get baptized today, um, but since we're running along, is, is he here? Do I see a hand? Maybe he's coming at eleven o'clock. That's okay. Um, so I'm just going to do this on our way out. Can everybody stand up, please? Our God, our Father, He is a great Father. He owns the sheep on a thousand hills. By naming everything in this universe, he expressed, that's mine. Our God, our Father, is immense. And in his grace and our predicament of sinfulness, his son who sat in absolute unapproachable light while angels proclaimed his name, in grace, chose to envelop himself in flesh to enter humanity, to express the grace of God, not just through his words and his actions, but through this wonderful act of death on the cross. And the Holy Spirit, oh, thank you for the Holy Spirit, who was given to us as a gift, as the means by which now, although we deserve nothing, we received the Holy Spirit as the means that we might be able to give to others. May you go this week in the name of the Father, 
in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, as children of the God Most High. A few weeks ago I said this, never, ever forget who you are. You are sons and daughters of the King. And all God's people said, God bless you.